0: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes were taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation... So, yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're
0: setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider. And I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore
2: wherever
1: you listen to podcasts.
2: Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, November 13th, 2019. This is the 234th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a fellow HRN host. He is also a chef and inventor, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the the week. So today's tip is to be an inventor. Yes, be a mad scientist. Sounds fun, right? But seriously, don't be afraid to think differently and strive to create the new. If there are no new inventions and everything remained status quo, the world would be a very boring place. Change is good, and we can be the changers. So let's invent. And we all want and need inspiration, as there's no reason it can't come from us, you and me. So that's my tip today. Now, I am thrilled to have my guest here in the studio with me, and I'm going to have to start talking faster. I know that. <laughs> I'm talking not fast enough, but I'm going to speed it up because my guest today is Dave Arnold. He is chef and inventor and the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network, along with Nastasia Lopez, where he has co-hosted over 350 episodes. Dave is a creative force in the world of food and cocktails. He partnered with Momofuku to create Booker & Dax, a a tech-heavy cocktail lounge. In 2004, he founded the Museum of Food and Drink to promote learning about the history and culture of food. Liquid Intelligence, his book Exploring the Science Behind Cocktails, won both James Beard and ICP Awards in 2015. And he currently co-owns Existing Conditions, a bar in Greenwich Village. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming here. I, you know, when I have to say, when I, when I, I, at the beginning of the show, I say what episode this is. And as I, my number goes up, I'm like, wow, it's high. That's high. That's high. And then I was like, oh, well, Dave's like got over 100 on me. <laughs> um-
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's just, you know, you keep doing them and they rack up. I yeah. lose track, to be honest. It, like, people tell me when I'm going to hit a new number, but. It's all just a blur.
2: Yeah, that's how I feel because that's the thing. I don't know how I've done that many shows, so here we are, episode two thirty four, <laughs> and it's about time I had you on because uh, your career and what you do is fascinating to me, and I think a lot of people. So, let's. I like to start and go back with my guests about a little about their background, their childhood. Mm. Were you know? Were you into food and science as, as a kid?
1: Yeah. Well, I was supposed to actually be. I mean, like science guy that's what everyone thought until i mean i was until i got to college actually and you know i needed at that point in order to really do the science you actually needed to kind of go to class and like you know do homework and all this other and i was you know at that age especially i mean you think that i mean i'm talking slowly now compared to my normal speed but i've listened to your show i know (laughs) <laughs> you, know, you think that I'm kind of all over the place and kind of fast. Now, when I was like eighteen, nineteen, I was just like 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 ADHD, hard like hardcore. It wasn't a you know thing back then. But you know, I was kind of like right. hardcore, all over the place, always on tangents, couldn't be tacked down, uh, kind of ball of energy. So that whole kind of um, discipline that you would have needed to do a good job at um, in the hard sciences kind of eluded me at the time. And, um, uh, well, I remained interested in it. So I ended up becoming a philosophy major, but I was always supposed to, yeah, I was always intended to be kind of a science guy. I've, I've never, like my dad's an engineer. My, you know, my, both my grandfathers are engineers. Uh, my mom's a doctor. My grandma on my dad's side was a technical drafts person. And so like, you know, it's like we have, uh, yeah, it's kind of in the,
2: it's in the blood. It's in
1: the blood. Yeah. And then also I've always, you know, I've always enjoyed cooking, you know, I was, I was home, you know, since my dad and my mom both worked, I was home alone quite a bit. So I would always noodle about in the kitchen. Like I started deep frying on my own when I was like 12. It was the 70. Well, no, yeah. that was okay. early 80s, I guess, <laughs> but I might've been, might've been younger. I might've been like 10 or 11, but you know, there was a kitchen there, there was food and you know, so I yeah. cooked it
2: so what what was your career path after college because i i kind of i know the things that have happened more in the past ten fifteen years
1: right well i you know i was I, my senior year in college i took a an art class because I had started going out with my current wife uh and she you know she was an architecture major, and so you know I didn't have kind of i didn't have anything i always kind of made things, but I didn't have anything under my belt in that realm. And I wasn't going to take, you know, a one-off architecture class. That didn't make much sense, you know. Uh, So I took an art class. And, you know, they taught me to weld, and they taught me um, more about kind of what the current art scene was at the time. Current is 19, like, 91 or 2. You know what I mean? But, uh, so, you know, current a long time ago. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I just kind of fell in love with it and, you know, making things and having access to a shop and, and building. And so I spent the, you know, next couple of years, I had a paralegal job, and I was really, really bad at that. Like, so bad. Like, they, they, they
2: didn't... <laughs> I can't see you doing that. They were
1: trying to... F- I mean, my Xerox finger was strong. You know what I mean? Right, I could right. Xerox very, very quickly. But I... Mean, I they were supposed to fire me. In fact, I later found it so I was better at computers and data than uh, the other folks at the, at the law office. And so I actually found the letter where they had drafted to fire me. Um, but in the meantime, before they could get around to actually firing me, I discovered that their database was woefully inadequate for uh, you know, what they needed to do. And so I just redesigned their database. And so, so before they could fire me, I was like, listen, listen, you know I'm bad at this paralegal thing. I know I'm bad at it. Why don't I do your, why don't I work half the time for more money and you're going to let me do whatever I want in terms of what hours I come in. You will allow me to dress however I want because I'm going to come directly from the shop with welding dust all over my face, but I'm going to do this database for you. And I'd already started doing it. So they you know, knew what you know, my capabilities were and they said, Okay. And so for a number of years, for a good number of years, I was a database designer for, um, for these lawyers. And I used that to pay my – not pay the bills because thankfully, you know, well, too long to get into. But to pay, <laughs> to pay for my life while right. I was trying to get into the art world. I went to art school, went to fine arts at Columbia. So like all of my living money. Uh, yeah. And then after I decided I wanted to get into the food world – all of that living money, where where I was trying to build up my my cred my in, in the food world to get my first real job, was all doing database design for for yeah. lawyers, you know, for a part time as a consultant. Who knew? Yeah, yeah.
2: How did you get connected to Food Arts magazine?
1: So yeah, and notice we were both Food Arts alums, Michael Baderberg, which is actually why I have a show here.
2: Really? Yeah. I feel so lucky. I had the experience. I was an intern there in 1999, and. Uh, that I got, I got to work with him, and and yeah, it was a very special place.
1: Yeah, I mean, both the Batterberries are amazing. Mm-hmm. Food Arts was, you know, it's it, no one, no one who wasn't around then can really kind of get it because you're like, well, it was a trade magazine, but but everyone read it in a, a, the industry. Everyone read it. Yeah, and everyone respected what mm-hmm. they had to say. Unlike you know the majority of other trade magazines, and it's because you know the Batterberries just were such a force, yeah. and um, you know I don't know how many people Michael helped when he was alive, but you know it's you talk to anyone and they're like, oh yeah, Michael Batterberry helped me out. It's very rare. There were some people that you know he didn't mix with, but he was just so generous with his with his time, mm-hmm. with his resources, and I you know, he never ever wanted credit for anything. He just really wanted to put people together. Like every time I was with him, he was like, you need to talk to this person. You need to talk to that person. So when I was, you know, much less well known, much, you know, know, very zero known, he would put me in touch with people that he thought could help me. When I had a little more cred in the industry, he would put people together with me who he thought I could help. He just liked helping people make themselves and other people better.
2: So had he led to the, your show on Heritage Radio?
1: Well, when he died, unfortunately, Patrick had me on because he knew that oh. I, you know, loved Michael and that Michael had gotten me my job at the French Culinary Institute, which is, you know, that's that's kind of where everyone started to know about my my abilities with food and technology. I'd been right. working with Wiley Dufresne, who's my brother-in-law now, wasn't at the time, uh, and uh, so you know, Michael Batterbury knew this. Michael Michael actually originally hired me uh, to to write. Pieces uh, for Food Arts on Food History is, you know, where he started because he originally knew me from when I first came up with the idea for the Museum of Food and Drink back in like 03 or 04. And, uh, you know, he saw a show that I did at at, uh, the Javits Center, like a little exhibition I did on Country Ham. For a while, I was the country ham guy.
2: Okay. Yeah. Uh, like
1: yeah, Way back in the day. I'm
2: learning a lot. Yeah. So
1: anyway, so my, you know Michael Batterbury kind of took me under his wing when he realized that I had this kind of food and technology thing. He started putting me on um, reviews of equipment and kind of more technology-centered things at food arts, and then finally recommended me to be the director of culinary technology at the French Culinary Institute, pitch being that there weren't any chefs who were doing it at the time who had left the kitchen yet. There were no kind of uh, tech-savvy, emeritus chefs yet at that point. So, you know, and that was the pitch. I was like, look, you don't want a chef because a chef's going to be in the kitchen. You don't want a scientist because a scientist can't talk to chefs. You want someone who hangs out with chefs but can also talk to scientists and can kind of merge those two worlds. So that was my pitch. It worked. It worked. And there was no one else doing it at the time. So, you know, someone asked me, so how do you get into doing this? I was like, well, you know, back when I did it, there was almost nobody doing it. So it was not that difficult. You know, it's like yeah. anything else, it's like if there's a niche there, it's all about the pitch. If somebody if somebody takes the pitch, yeah, then that's it. You're you know. a publicist, I get the pitch. Yeah. Well you know but but yeah. but people don't people don't get that. It's like you just have to convince like in life in life, you just have to convince someone to give you the shot and then you have to do a good job. But, right, you know what right. I mean? But yeah. a lot of times the hardest thing is to convince someone to give you the shot. When you have someone, this is why you need, you don't need, but it's helpful to have someone like a Ma- Michael Batterbury. It's helpful to find someone who is, uh, you know, someone who's, you know, maybe a generation, two or three older than you, you know, who will go to bat for you. Because, you know, if I think a lot of people, especially when they're, Younger. I know I was this way. I don't want any, I, I just want to do everything on my own. I don't want, I don't, I don't need help. This is crap. This is garbage. Or like, you know, I don't want to use my, look, listen, use whatever you have. <laughs> you know, the, I think the rule is be generous. Don't just give opportunities to people, you know, that's your responsibility like, especially currently today, being responsible is to not just give opportunities to people who, you know, went to the same places you did or, you know, are from the same background you are. Like, that's the responsibility that, you know, I feel as an owner now. But as a human, like, trying to start out, use what you've got, you know, and definitely, you know, if you have someone in your corner, let them go to bat for you. You know, that's my feeling anyway.
2: Given, I'm going to use these tips on future shows. <laughs> the good tips.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I agree. Um,
2: so you went on Patrick Martin's show and that led to...
1: Your well, you pitch, know. their well, pitch. Uh, How did f-
2: cooking issues come about? There
1: weren't that many shows on Heritage yeah, Radio new, at you, the time. 2010. Right? So for those of you that don't know yeah. Patrick, right, I'm actually, you know, I'm, this is, whenever I imitate Patrick, I do somebody else, another friend of mine's imitation of Patrick. He's like, you know, you want to come on and do a show? You know, like Patrick's like yeah. all over the yeah. place. Yeah. So I was like, the you know, I was like, I was like, okay, fine. And I was like, but I, I was like, listen, you know, I kind of get your pitch here. It's Heritage Radio, your heritage foods, slow foods. I was like, you realize that kind of I do not that for a living. You know what I mean? I, I, like, at this time, especially, I was still at the French Culinary Institute. I was still, you know, regularly writing a blog that was solely on the kind of technical aspects of cooking. And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, it'll work. And so here I am, you know, however many years later. That was, I don't know when, when Michael died, but that was probably... I don't know, eight nine years ago, yeah, nine, nine years ago, something like this. Well, we well, I know it wasn't ten because we just had our tenth anniversary. Well, in, the
2: in, in, in in your bio it says two thousand
1: ten. <laughs> oh, there you go. So yeah, nine years ago, <laughs> just yeah. cheating a little. Yeah. But
2: so so cooking issues as far as the was that your title you came up with the concept and is it always how has the show
1: changed over these. Nine years. Uh, Well, so at the time, Cooking Issues was the blog that I was writing at at the French Culinary. So that was, when I was at the French Culinary, I realized that, you know, we were doing all of this work, but we could only reach the people, this is, I don't know, 09, 08, I don't know, I can't remember. But Um, uh, I realized that we couldn't reach um, anyone past the people who were at the French Culinary or the demos that we were doing, um, you know. We couldn't reach anyone else. And I said, you know, we're doing good work. You know, uh, we should do a blog. So, you know, we started the blog. Uh, I was writing that, uh, you know, at the time, you know, the major, you know, food blogs are still around. Like, you know, Ideas and Food was huge. Mm -hmm. Um, Who else was huge? Jeez, I don't even remember. Ideas and Food was huge. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But the, you know, and there was a couple other blogs that, you know, I can't remember. Um, And... uh, you know, it, it just started from there. I started kind of talking to other people, um, kind of getting a little bit of a further reach outside of the people who could afford to come to the French Culinary Institute. Uh, and so the show is based on that because the blog was taking way too much of my time because my writing. Mental writing style is that it takes it takes me forever to even write three words, and all of the posts were like four thousand words, two thousand, four thousand words. Yeah, and writing, so writing
2: does take time, I find. Yeah, it, takes, yeah. it took a huge yeah. amount
1: of time, and so you know I, the radio show was uh, you know I, you can't keep re-editing yourself because you're talking, and right. so you have to get it out. So it was a way for me to kind of get it out. Now, I don't do the kind of heavy research for the radio, and it was when I when I. When I used to do a post on cooking issues, I would go into these you know super deep rabbit holes on subjects, super deep, you know, and and I kind of miss doing that. Uh, but, Such as, oh, you know, like I'd spend like, you know, like, like you know, a hundred something hours on nixtamalization. You know what I mean? Just learning about nixtamalization, or like, <laughs> um, or any any one of these things, just like. You know, dozens of recipes, you know, hundreds of hours, just thinking about it, learning about it, you know, traveling to places, you know, figuring everything out that I could and then kind of trying to distill what I'd learned into a thing. And I miss that. I don't have the time to do that anymore. When I was at the French culinary, I could do that because my, my job, in essence, was to do that. Right. You know, now that, you know, my job is to, when I wrote Liquid Intelligence, again, it was my job to kind of revisit everything I'd already come up with, techniques I'd already figured out, or, you know, ideas that I already believed in, and revisit it. So I also got to do a lot of new kind of techniques, uh, do a lot of new research, um, because the book afforded you the ability to do that but in day to day it's hard to it's hard to do it unless it's your job like doing new stuff is hard unless it's your job so i think the show has changed to answer the second part of your question <laughs> the, uh, the show has changed in that at the beginning it was almost exclusively ve- you know very highly technical food or ingredient technique or discussion of you know use this hydrocolloid cook at this temperature, uh, this is how you cook a raccoon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> this is how you don't cook a raccoon because I've, I've only ever cooked it once and it was terrible. Um, but, uh, terrible, just really bad.
2: I haven't cooked one, uh, so I've I have cooked know. it, you yeah, <laughs> guinea pigs are
1: good, you know, beaver okay. good. Okay. Uh, the raccoon, terrible, terrible. Okay. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, but, you know, it, You've been doing it long enough, and I've been with, you know, Nastasia has been, uh, you know, uh, working. she worked with me at the French Culinary Institute. She's been the co-host since forever. So now it's kind of devolved more into a, a kind of a car talk situation where Nastasia and I, you know, just grouse at each other all day, and, and then we answer a couple of cooking questions. But, uh, you know.
2: Yeah. Um, but you take Collins. Yeah. Which that, I, I've always been impressed by that. That's, well, you know, a, a
1: different element of doing a
2: live radio show?
1: I mean, the thing is, right, I think, and I I I tell this to kind of everybody, is that if you, you know, if you spend a lot of time trying to, or if you spend a lot of time learning something, and you feel that, you know, that you know what you're talking about, then it's okay if someone calls and you don't know the answer. Because you're not embarrassed that you don't know the answer, because you're confident that that, you know, you're confident that you're still good at your job, even if you don't know the answer. So you just say, I don't know, and say something kind of similar. Or, you know, you, you say what you do know and say, you know, where you think you would look it up. Uh, and so, you know, that, you know having that kind of, uh, kind of internal confidence, if you can get to a place where you have that kind of internal confidence, kind of lets you not worry about it so much. It's it's I think, you know, especially when you're starting out, it, it's when you it's when you're worried if you're worried about not knowing, then it gets harder and yeah. harder, you know, yeah. so for, for, I'll give you another example. So like, you know, I have two kids and you know I'm married. I have two kids and um, I have, you know, I'm trying to build restaurant equipment for my company, Booker and Dax, which the bar doesn't exist, but the company still does. And we make seersalls and spinzalls, make all kinds of stuff. You know, I'm supposed to be writing a new book. I have this radio show, working on the museum. I have the bar, existing conditions. I have all these things. So consequently, I, I don't go out anymore. And so like, I'm not, I, I very rarely go out. And so I'm not as current as I really should be about what's going on in the industry as a whole. So I rely on my crew, who are very current. So when people say to me, where should I go out? I'm like, well, you should ask Jack, my head bartender, or AK, manager, or Karen, or Bobby. These are all people at my, at my bar. I was like, they have a much more valid opinion on what's going on now, what what's what's good. And I rely on them to, I rely, and this is why you need to have people you work with that you can rely on, that you trust, because I also rely on them when I have ideas to tell me, no, somebody else is doing that and you know, maybe they're doing it better, maybe they're doing it worse, but this is what is going on. So you need to stay current somehow and if you can't stay current, you need to work with people who are current and you need to listen to them. Uh, and so, you know, like it's that kind of thing now that like I just don't even feel comfortable answering questions about what is going on with X, certain things, X, Y, or Z, general trends, obviously I know. Um, but yeah. But I think you, know, you need to be confident enough to realize what your skills are and what your skills aren't.
2: There were a few more tips in there. This whole show is so many tips, and I agree. Yes, good advice. Uh, let's take another. Let's take a break. Okay, <laughs> and we'll come back, and we will talk more with Dave Arnold. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Dave Arnold. He is the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. He's also the co-owner of Existing Conditions. He is the founder of MoFad. And there's more. There's more. But we'll just...
1: Too many things all over the place.
2: Too many things. Well, let's talk talk a bit about the cocktail bar world. Because you had Booker and Dax, and now you have Existing Conditions. So... uh, were the concepts or the thoughts behind them at all the
1: same? Are they completely different? And well, I'm the same. <laughs> you know, what I mean, so it's like, are if, you?
2: No. I mean, <laughs> I, no,
1: wait, I mean, it's it's look. If I had three different places, then I think you would, you know, feel the need to completely differentiate them. But uh, because I had Booker and Dax, and then Booker and Dax closed, and then you know existing conditions. There, there wasn't really a need to differentiate the style as much. They're very different places because they're different. Not just that they're different. Even I have stayed the same, but the partners have changed. Right. right. So Booker and Dax the bar was you know kind of a, a barnacle on Mamafuku Sambar. Uh, And so we were attached to Sambar. So with that came, you know, a lot of great things and a lot of challenges. Booker & Dax was also small. But in terms of the kind of creative input into what the style of the drinks was going to be and and how that stuff worked, really kind of I had the kind of last word on it. Um, And I had a very different attitude towards kind of what was important aside from just drinks at that time. Uh, you know, and I'll explain what I mean in a second, but the, the new bar is a partnership with uh, Don Lee, you know, uh, of, you know, formerly of PDT. Cocktail Kingdom ran the back of the house program at Tales of the Cocktail, you know, which kind of a, yeah. a general, you know, he's the overlord of cocktails. Uh, so, you know, I partnered, as soon as I knew Booker and Dax was closing, I kind of partnered up with him. And so, you know, the, then we, the two of us partnered with Greg Bohm, the owner of Cocktail Kingdom, and, you know, the bars, Maze, Katana Kitten, yeah. and all these yeah. places. All,
2: all impressive stuff.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, we partnered with him, and so then it became a collaboration between three people. And so, you know, it's very different just because, you know, I'm one-third of the people that are involved with existing conditions, The style of the drinks is very much influenced by um, what I was doing at Booker & Dax because when I called Don, I was like, Don, you're the only person I would really want to do a bar with because, you know, we've known each other for years. We can speak the same language. I kind of know what's important to you. You know what's important to me. And so, you know, he has a lot of projects, um, ongoing years, years years-long projects, about trying to change the industry in a positive way, um, both in terms of guest experience, but I think even more importantly in terms of how we operate, um, specifically in a kind of social justice way. Uh, And so, you know, I was like, you know, let's make our two projects the same project. So, you know, a lot of the drinks attitudes come from, you know, kind of what I've been doing before, but then a lot of attitudes about, you know, how staff should w- work, how staffing should work, how um, opportunities should be given out, or kind of what it means to succeed, a kind of, you know, I've been taking on his, you know, his projects, and so we've kind of been merging them, uh, and so I think it's, it's, as an operating unit, extremely different from Booker right. and DAX, even though, you know, we, Don and I, and, uh, you know, Greg as well, I think we kind of agreed on this kind of one idea is that uh, that Booker and DAX was based on, that I still believe is, is good, not so good for PR, frankly, but, you know, we... We want we we want to do these kind of high tech and new techniques, but we don't want to force it down your throat when you're at the bar. So we're not, and the whole reason it's called existing conditions is because we are like, look, we're just going to take this bar pretty much as it comes. We're going to make everything match because it was a nightmare. We're going to rip out the ugly steampunk, you know, fixtures and just put like bare bulbs and globes in. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's it's about. It should just look friendly, and the people who are there, the guests, should look look their best, right? It's not that the place should look the best. It's that the people in the place should look the best. You good should lighting. look your best. Yeah, good lighting. <laughs> yeah. It shouldn't look like good lighting. In other words, it shouldn't look like, oh, my God, the lighting. It's more like, oh, my date looks great. You know what I mean? Like, I feel great. Like, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. Uh, and so we focus more on our staff and on, you know, trying to make people feel uh, at home. So, like, we're not the kind of place necessarily you would go if you wanted to feel super glitzy. Although, you know, you could show up, you know, all yeah, glitzed out. Yeah, But it's more just like, you know, uh, it's a place you could go and feel comfortable, yeah. but we're going to be serving you, uh, you know, we, we do take a lot of care with the drinks that we make and the techniques that we use. So it's kind of this weird. They're yeah. kind of this dual existence, and so people come all the time. And be like, it's not what I expected. I was like, well, what do you expect? And they're like, well, I expected, you know, kind of like science weirdos and and geek tricks. I'm yeah. like, no, it's yeah.
2: like, no, I've 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 been, and I've and I get. So I I obviously get it, and I think the way you're describing it, yeah, makes sense. And I think it's. I want to talk a little bit about your non-alcoholic program. Oh yeah, because yeah. Because you have a pretty comprehensive section there, then I don't drink. So that's to me, I came in, I I had a couple of, couple of your drinks and, and you also are charging the same price for no alcohol, alcohol, which you don't see a lot in other bars. So what, what was your reasoning or decisions behind all, all of this?
1: So, you know, this goes back to something that I frankly had been thinking about back at Booker and Dax, but kind of fits into, you know, the, I was telling you the whole project about respecting, Respecting the guests and making everyone feel like they're part of your community, we wanted to make sure that everyone knew that we were taking as much care with our non-alcoholic drinks as we were taking with our alcoholic drinks. And so, part of that is never using the the M word mocktail because it's I'm
2: glad I didn't say it. Yeah, it contains do,
1: it contains the word mock. It's
2: gonna it's gonna come out later in the right. show though. Right, it c- contains the word <laughs> mock. It's you know it's bad.
1: You know I'm I I'm not mocking anyone, and I have witnessed and I had a, actually. It's one of those you ever have those experiences where like you can still see it you know you you remember it you're never going to forget it and I had this I was in a bar and I watched a bartender make a, a non-alcoholic um, drink and you know they were doing their thing and and uh, the guest in front of them said "What are you doing and the bartenders ah it's only a, it's only not it's only a non-alcoholic i.e. not even interesting enough to talk about. And I was like, wow, that's really insulting. I was like, you're really insulting the person that you're serving that to. You know what I mean? Like, whether you know it or not, whether you intend to, you're being extremely dismissive. And, you know, it's no wonder that people, you know, a lot of people who don't drink don't go to bars because why would they? If they're not being respected and, you know, why would you go?
2: I still, yeah, I get that. I still go to bars, but I typically drink club soda. Right. I, I find, you know, it's like that's my drink of choice. Right. Well,
1: I mean, like, we have that. I mean, like, yeah. th- so the thing is, 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 I was like, look, uh, one aspect, I mean, let's not, you know, beat around the bush. Like a lot of people they want to get a little bit of buzz on, right? I mean, like alcohol does that, but that's only one of the aspects. I mean, alcohol is a social lubricant when used properly, um, but, you know, that's not the only thing that is fun about bars as kind of a community space, you know, where people can go and meet and have a good time. Uh, You know, they have a certain atmosphere that is worthwhile without the alcohol. And so we wanted people who didn't want to drink to be able to fully experience yeah. that.
2: And, and I definitely got that and, and appreciated that uh, from what you're doing at Existing Conditions.
1: Yeah. And, you yeah. know, and so we decided to charge, you know, first of all, we make sure that the ingredients that we use in our non-alcoholic drinks are either fantastically expensive or unobtainable or some combination of, of expensive or unobtainable. And by doing that, you know, we can kind of justify... The cost. In fact, they typically some a lot of some of them cost more than any of our alcoholic drinks, any of our regularly priced alcoholic drinks for us to make. Right. And um, we kind of want to, you know, disconnect the idea of value from the idea of getting drunk. And so, uh, and we also didn't want people to think that we were treating them like children. So we charge the same amount. Uh, you know, in you know, if you want club soda, that's free. You know, but if you you know want a drink and we're gonna put you know frankly more care and time into it than we do into uh, well more time anyway, yeah. same amount of care it than we do into a lot of our alcoholic drinks, well, then we're just gonna charge the same amount, and most of the people that have a problem with that are drinkers, people who drink alcohol interesting, that, yeah, it's rare that we have someone who doesn't drink sometimes we'll get people who you know they, they, again, they just want club soda. fine, you know what I mean. But the the program is there. I mean, sure, we you know your share of designated drivers and whatnot, who are normally drinkers, and maybe they'll grouse about the price. But really, you know, the program is there to let everyone know that they're welcome in the community.
2: And I appreciate that. I really do. Let's go back to my last question that I had my guest ask you on episode 233 I had on Claire Reichenbach. She's the CEO of the James Beard Foundation. Nice. And I asked her to ask you a question. So here is Claire. Okay.
0: Okay. You know, Dave is the visionary behind Mofa, the museum for, for food mm-hmm. and drink. Um, and I know that they have a very exciting exhibit coming up. It's called African American. Um, I would really love to hear his views on that in terms of which elements of that exhibit he's most excited about revealing to the public. It's one that we will be attending for sure, but I'd love to hear, hear his inside um, insight on that.
1: Okay. Uh, well, so first of all, the pr- one problem is, is that... While I know exactly what's going into it, I don't know what's been publicly released. I was about to say (laughs) you probably don't know. So, I mean, like, as a PR person, like, you know that I can only say what...
2: Yeah, don't get in trouble. I'm
1: not going to get in trouble, but, (laughs) you know, I'll say stuff that I know is out there. It's... um, so first of all, the the curator for it is Jessica B. Harris, right? So you know, you know, Dr. Harris, I've known her for many, many years. Is, I think, without question, the preeminent, um, uh, the preeminent historian of uh, African American food anywhere. I mean, period. Yeah. You know what I mean? So she, you know, she, like, I was fortunate that you know. Uh, the museum, you know, that, you know, she was uh, on the advisory, you know, board in the, uh, committee in the museum already and that, you know, we've known her for a long time. But really, there is no better person on the planet to be the curator for this than, uh, than she is. And so, you know, we're fortunate enough to have her in, as the head curator. And then our advisory board for the exhibit is also kind of an all-star, you know, cast of people. Uh, you know, in, in the African-American community. Yeah. And so, you know, the first thing I think that, you know, people need to wrap their heads around is some people are like, you know, if, you know when I'm talking about these people like, what is Just a bunch of white guys coming up with that? No, no, it's not. That's not what it is. Like, the museum is, you know, the museum. It's kind of an entity that, you know, we've been working on uh, for a long time. But... You know, sp- specifically when we have a, a a story like this that you know um, we think is important, we're definitely getting people in the communities involved to tell that story. Uh, so that's one. Uh, but we just have. I mean, the, the the problem with it is is this. The problem with an exhibit of this nature is this. Frankly, uh, this topic has never been tackled uh, as a as a major food exhibition before ever. Uh, and it is huge. So the initial kind of, you know, the spitball pitch behind it was, you know, African-American food is often uh, pigeonholed, like black food is pigeonholed as soul food, right? And this is doing a huge, or, you know, a certain form of like uh, Southern cooking, right? Mm-hmm. And this is doing a giant uh, disservice to all of the different influences that, you uh, know, um, black people, African-American people have had on, uh, the American foodways as a whole. The problem is, is because their, their contribution is actually so great that, uh, it's any exhibition that's in a small amount of space, which even though this is, you know, going to be at the Africa center on 110th street, um, you know,
2: oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, so we're there, we're opening in, uh, either late February, early March next year. And so the whole ground floor area of the Africa Center is going to, which is, you know, just barely have our feet on Museum Mile. We're like, yeep, just made it. Uh, but the, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, even though that's, yeah. you know, a decent-sized space, it's still nothing compared to how big the story is. And so there, there's inevitably going to be some cherry-picking of, you know, which stories we choose to tell. And part of the problem is, is you don't want to like just tell five stories and someone's like, oh, so that's it, it's five stories, that's a contribution. And you're like, no, like we're showing you these five stories, but they're part of this giant contribution. So in order to kind of bring that uh, across, one of the things that uh, we're having uh, made is, uh, it's called the Legacy Quilt. So it's just this like, kind of large quilt. Uh, and we have uh, Harlem Needleworks is, is, uh, is putting it together um, where we're having... Um, 400, you, arbitrary number because it's the size of the quilt we're making, 400 different squares, each representing, uh, you know, a person, an African-American you know, who made a contribution to American food, whether it be, you know, um, uh, you know Hemmings, the first, you know, classically trained French chef who was enslaved at Monticello, you know, and who may or may not have brought mac and cheese to this country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or, you know, whether it's... Um, you know, the invention of uh, refrigerated trucks, which was, uh, you know, an African-American, uh, which, by the way, people know this. L- literally, every, the, uh, the, the uh, Thermo, Thermo King, right? Thermo King, who makes all of the reefer trucks, which were refrigerated trucks, and the, the refrigerated units for boxcars, like, all of them, right? Fre- uh, you know, Jones, Fred, 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 Fred Jones, Fred McKinley Jones, anyway, he... Invented this in the like late 30s, early 40s, and started becoming popular in the 40s. The same company that this guy founded, right, him and his partner, uh, and he was the inventor, is still the company that makes them all. Literally, every like the entire cold chain of, of distributed food is fundamentally because of this this guy. So, because uh, he figured out how to make a, a separately powered portable refrigerating unit that could go into a truck. So, it's things like that. Okay. or Or, like, you know, uh, a lot of hospitality yeah. was done by, uh, you know, uh, African Americans back in the day. So, it's just going to be, it's going to be pretty cool.
2: What's the launch date on of it? Uh,
1: I can't give you an exact okay. date. Okay. Uh, I know
2: you just got, you, you I, your Kickstarter yep. succeeded. Congratulations on yep. that. Um you know, I'm proud to support everything you guys are doing, and I can't wait to go whenever it opens.
1: First quarter next year. <laughs>
2: yeah, first quarter next year. Um, so that's that's fabulous. I normally take a break now, but I think because we're a little tight on time, we're going to skip over our break. Okay. And we're just going to slide right into my speedrun game. oh Are you ready? I
1: hope I, I hope I don't lose. Or do you need the break? No, I don't need breaks.
2: <laughs> I didn't think you did. Okay, so what this is is I... I name a few things, and you pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. choices. Okay. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? In. All right. This is a new one. Wine, beer, cocktail, or non-alcoholic drink? Because I normally say mocktail. Wine. (laughs) Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting. Small plates or large plates?
1: Ooh. I
2: stumped you on that one? S-
1: small. Small.
2: It's going with small. Small. small, small.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> communal table or chef's counter?
1: A Communal table.
2: Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. The spinzel or the surzel, or oh. even the cocktail cube?
1: Oh, well, you yeah. oh, know, that's yeah. tough. Like, now, the thing is, what's going to make me more money?
2: Yeah, what Yeah, is-
1: probably the, Sear- the Sears all makes me more money, but I really wish people would learn to use a centrifuge, so that's a tough one. I'm gonna have to pass.
2: Okay, pass. These are these are inventions by Dave, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Shrimp sticks or Kiev nuggets?
1: Oh, these are uh, uh ingre- things at our bar. I'm gonna go Kiev
2: nuggets. Yeah, I just picked those two. I'm go Kiev seemed- nuggets.
1: Kiev nuggets. There's like, you know, Shorty came up with those. You know, uh, you know Josh Eden, Shorty oh, from yeah, Shorty sure. Yeah. So that was a uh, Shorty's thing. He's like, I'm gonna make I'm going to make, uh, you know, chicken. They're like chicken nuggets, but there's going to be melted butter and herbs on the inside, like chicken Kiev. I'm going to make chicken Kiev nuggets. Someone's like, sure, chef. Yes, that's it. Yes, yes,
2: sure yes chef. Go. Yeah. That's all you need to say. Yeah. How about, okay, we have two more. Cheese
1: plate or dessert? Oh, cheese. Oh, sorry. Sorry, dessert, chef. but cheese. Oh, cheese. Yeah. Oh, cheese. Cheese. But the the real answer is both.
2: Why one? Some people have said that. Yeah. Definitely a popular answer okay manhattan or brooklyn
1: oh uh, well the manhattan cocktail is definitely the best cocktail and also that's where i live and where my business is so i'm gonna have to go manhattan on that
2: i love it because there have been a few people on 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 this show who it's i'm referring to neighborhoods but a few people have said the the drinks so i figured you would go
1: that direction too awesome that's the game oh did i how'd i do I think you did well. Who were the first couple? Because some of them, like, it's hard. Like, like, eat in. Like, the thing is, is that it's not that I don't like to eat out. You know what I mean?
2: I know. I know. But you chose.
1: <laughs> so now yeah, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. like, no. And also, I like, mean, the you tipping can still all- eat out, even though you played the, this game. The tipping of the all-inclusive is also interesting because you're like, as an owner or as a
2: as a guest? Well, what, what is the difference in your answer?
1: Well, so first of all, like let's say you go to a. I, I think it depends on how it's being done. I'm really very curious as to how the all-inclusive thing goes for the staff. Are they just paid an hourly? Do they get it? Do they get a percentage of the house? Like how does it work? You know, like let's say let's say you go to a let's say you go to a place, and you know they. You, you get comped. Let's say let's say I go to a place and I know the owner right. or I know the comped. chef or another. I get comped. So the etiquette is I tip a much larger percentage than you would tip as a normal guest, right? Right. So that the owner comping me is not only not hurting their staff, like it's actually helping their staff to give me the comp, right? That's the etiquette. You over tip on yeah. a comp. Right. That's the etiquette. Um, and so... You know, uh, let's say I get comped. What am I going to do in an all-inclusive place? I feel like I'm damaging the... I feel like I'm messing with the staff. You know what I mean? Like, they're not... Yeah. You know, I just don't know how it works. You know, also... um, I just I just don't know how it works. That's why whenever people I know, like Nick Bennett, who, uh, you know, has porch light and other right. places, yeah. you know, I need to sit him down. But I mean, even if he told me what he really thought I couldn't tell you, because that's him for him to tell you, not for me to tell you. But I'm always curious how it works as a house. Like, can you retain the staff as long? Like, are the staff as happy? I'm very interested in the subject.
2: Yeah, it um, is an interesting subject. And, you know, I, I mean, I had Danny Meyer on a while ago and we... We definitely taught I mean, this is this is a few years ago when it was really uh, a few. He he went to the no tipping, and then there were mm-hmm. other other restaurants that that went as well. I mean, in the past. The dirt couple candy, of years, I know,
1: was no tipping, but yeah, I haven't they been no, yeah, they still are. Yeah, they still are. But some some went and went back. Right. You well, know? I mean, it's it. Look, I mean, a lot of people make a lot of people who aren't in the industry make tipping out to be something that, oh, the owners just don't want to pay their, their stuff. It's like, that's not, that's not it. You know what I mean? The economics are what the economics are. You know what I mean? It's like, I really want to know if it's better for our staff or not. I'm really curious. If it was better for our staff and for the guests, I would do it.
2: Okay. To be continued. Yeah. So for industry news, there was an article in the New York Times I picked out. At museums around the world, a focus on food. This was in the travel section. It says the new Cite Internationale. I'm going to butcher this. Cite Internationale de la Gastronomie de Lyon.
1: Yeah, a bunch of French words. It's a it's a it's a food museum in Lyon. Gracias. Lyon. <laughs> Lyon. <laughs> I say merci. Yeah. Um, yes. So
2: so there's a new museum in Lyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is one of gr- a growing number of museums centers around food. And, and Peter Kim, MoFad, mm-hmm. you guys are in this article. And this is just, you know, it's talking about this trend. I was thinking you're trend centers here. So this was six years in the making. Um, it's going to be quite large, it says. It's a, the opening of a new cultural gastronomy center that is being described as the first of its kind in France.
1: I believe that. I mean, the, 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 look, the French... Pretty much everyone but America has a, you know, uh, understands that celebrating your culinary heritage is good for business. So other government, I'm sure the French government, or at least like the government in Lyon, or the or the you know the provincial level government there, probably helped them out a great deal uh, with money. You know what I mean? Um, which is, you know, frankly, how most other you know quote unquote food museums are started. They're started by a person with a, you know, a vested interest in a particular food item. And so they kind of, you know, pay for it. Um, not how you started. Not No, not how we started. So we did the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to be in anyone's pocket because we want people to perceive us as straight shooters. We want to be straight shooters. Right. And uh, so the the you know, thing is, is look, like, uh, Lyon is like an amazing, I've only ever actually had one or two meals there in my life, but, you know, it is kind of, you know, at the gastronomic heart yeah. of France. And yeah, I've been there once, yeah. just to, because. Yeah, it's great, right? Yeah, uh, and so it's a great place for a food museum. Yeah, you I know? agree. Um, when, when I first, uh, you know, thought of Mofad, the only other extant museum that was not a single food museum uh, that was around that I knew of at the time was Copia, which was, you know. Um, Underwritten almost entirely by the Mondavi family, mm-hmm. and but they kind of had a dual mission. It was kind of food, but it was also art. They had art there, and and so I was like, look, that's not what we're gonna do. This is about food, not about art related to food, or food as art. It's about food and kind of the you know the, the economics, the production, the history, the science, like all, all you know anything that. You're interested in, you can kind of look through and use food as a lens for, and that's why you see so many exhibits. That's why you see universities teaching science through the lens of food. You te- see them teaching um, politics and, and um, sociology through the lens of food. You see museums uh, tackling various food things because they realize that people are interested in food, and so it's it's a good and ever you know it's the the whole museum concept is you know we all. Everyone who works at the museum has this fundamental belief. If you want to learn something about somebody, break bread with them. And so it's all it's about that. Um, and that's why at the museum we try to have you actually eat things when you come. Because or to smell things. Yeah. Well it's the idea of breaking yeah. bread with yeah. somebody. Yeah.
2: yeah. Awesome. Well and this article ha- listed uh had, had some other examples of museums around the world too. So uh yeah. Um I, I always think when these things come out that are just appropriate to talk about with my guest, I get very excited. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah. frankly, if I hadn't come up with that museum idea, and I wouldn't have done any of the other things. I wouldn't be here or anywhere because the, the reason that Michael Batterberry, uh, you know, first started talking to me in 2004 or 5, which is when I had the idea, mm-hmm. was because I had done this preliminary kind of like, shouldn't there be a museum to, about food and drink? And that's how I, I met him. That's how everything else happened. Otherwise, I'd, who knows? I'd still be in a loft somewhere, you know.
2: Yeah. Wow, well, it's impressive. You yeah. did. You went for it and you did it. And, um, yeah, all full circle. Yeah. Okay, before we take a break, I have a big announcement. I made an announcement last week about Host Summit and Social, the new all-day conference. For and about the dynamic hospitality industry that I've been working on, and uh, today we launch our ticket sales. So this this host stands for hospitality operations, services, and technology. And this first year of doing this conference is it's going to take place in January on January 27th at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and uh, it's you know it's inspired by my show here. So uh, we have we're featuring. Different panelists, uh, in, and some of them are Drew Nieporn, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobilliani, Keith Zurst, J.J. Johnson, Jimmy Uy, go on and on and on. We're going to have... Uh, Informative panels, one-on-one interviews, fabulous networking opportunities. There's going to be great food and drink, of course. And um, we're also going to have this curated lunch option that you can sign up for with our speakers. So I'm really excited about it. Our tickets went live today. Our website is allintheindustry.com. You can go there. You can learn more about the event. And our tickets are at an early bird price until November 30th. So ahead and also follow us at all industry for updates and um yeah i'm super excited bringing behind the scenes talents in hospitality to the forefront in this new live format so i hope you'll to see you there okay one more break and we'll come back we'll do my solo dining experience and we'll have the final question this is all in the industry on heritage radio network Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liut, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Nami Nori. Here's the rundown. The location, 33 Carmine Street, West Village, New York City. The concept, a casual yet elegant, elegant tamaki bar offering a unique sushi experience. The chefs and owners, Taka Sakata, Jiha Lee, and Lisa Lim. So why'd I go? Because this new casual, more quote unquote affordable sushi restaurant sounded like my type of place. My experience? Well, it was my type of place. I walked in, you know, the advantage of going solo, and I've said this before in the show, is I got a seat as soon as I walked in, and they were quoting people parties of two and more over an hour and a half. So I got the last seat at one of the sushi counters. Um, I was guided through the menu by the server. Uh, I, uh, there was two parts of uh, the menu from the kitchen and also from the tamaki bar. Um, I ordered, I, some of the ordering I did directly through the chef in front of me and, uh, the girls next to me gave me some tips on what, what they thought were the best rolls. And, um, it was, it was a good time. So what did I get? I had the spicy tuna crispy rice and that came from the kitchen. And then I did four tamaki. I had the exo scallop with tobiko and lemon. I had the spicy crab dynamite. I had the salmon plus avocado, which was the traditional, and then I splurged on one. I did toro plus scallion with a caviar add-on. So my take, it was really delicious, and each tamaki is about two or three bites. Um, it was, I, you know, I felt my order size was, was right. Everything came out super fast, fresh, um, great combos. I really enjoyed it. So the ambiance, it's minimalistic, modern space. It has the two sushi counters that are sort of in semi-circles. I'd say it's perfect for sushi lovers who are more on a budget. Interesting tidbit, the partners all previously worked for sushi master Masa Takayama, and they decided to set out on their own to open a more accessible place. So personal fun fact. I once dined at Massa with a friend celebrating our birthdays, and it was absolutely amazing, but still to this date, it's the most I've spent on a meal. Um, it was, it was a lot, but it was, it was quite special. So, um, I like having this as a more, more affordable option. As I said, the cost of my meal was 49 and, uh, that's not including tax and gratuity. The splurge roll I got, there was an extra $10 for the caviar. So if you skip something like that, it really, it really is more budget-friendly. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is naminori.nyc. Nice. Nice. Okay. Time for the final question. Next week, I'm having on Ruth Reichel. Nice. She is legendary food writer and former restaurant critic of the New York Times. So, Dave, what would you like to ask her?
1: Man, uh, you ever used to read those? Yes. She could be brutal.
2: Yeah, I was talking last night with someone about uh, the Le Cirque, the famous Le Cirque reviews. Yeah, with the Side wigs. by side. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, yeah. That was brutal. Like I remember reading that and being like, wow. I mean, and like, you know, she had a real... The writing was good, like sharp, but like, I don't know. So my, I've always, you know, curious, you know, do you enjoy writing? Do you enjoy more of the reviews where you like the place or do you enjoy more the kind of hit jobs where you, where you, you know, are going to go to town on somebody and kind of as a follow up, you know, as a, a non critic. In fact, I you will never you will never hear me say something negative about somebody else's restaurant or or bar just because I know it affects their livelihood. Do you ever as a critic feel bad about the fact that you are saying something that's going to affect people's livelihoods. Not just the owner and the chef, but you know, the people who are who are working there, like, you know, the servers and all this. Like does that Like, how can you shut that out of your head? I mean, I'm assuming you have to, to write the review, but how do you shut that, how do you shut that knowledge out of your head? Or are you just like, it doesn't matter, they're asking for your money, so they get what they get, and they should not get upset. You know, it's just, it's an interesting dynamic for me of, 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 you know, doing that. I mean, at least at the New York Times, they are relatively conscientious in that they have to go three times, et cetera, et cetera. But still, I mean, it seems like a kind of crazy responsibility.
2: I hear you I'm gonna find out all those answers and thinking you and I wear a lot of hats but probably both of us wouldn't be a reviewer
1: yeah no no <laughs> I don't no. think I
2: could do it I don't think I think I mean my my solo dining experiences are are positive I mean I might I might point out you know something I like more than than less, but but I'm not, I don't want to take anyone down.
1: I mean, look, in the industry, right? I mean, how many times have you seen this? Like someone like has a particular axe to grind, so they take a hit out on a restaurant. I've known many restaurants that's happened to. Or the worst is when someone goes, when a critic goes to a restaurant too early and they haven't found their legs yet, mm-hmm. and then they get their whatever, when they're trying to get their standing, they gets knocked out from underneath them and they can never recover no matter how good they get. I don't think it's that way anymore because I think that, you know, the, the internet has, has kind of leveled that out a little bit. I don't think these days any one person has the power to obliterate the way that they used to. Yeah. But back in the day, back when she was, you know, writing at The Times and, you know, for a long time before and a long time afterwards, you know, th- that review could put a serious dent in your business or be a serious boon. You could also really help someone out. It's a big responsibility.
2: I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll find out, and um, that's the show. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for coming. I'm I'm amazed by everything you do and and your whole career, and I love that we have the Batterberry
1: connection. Yeah, the Batterberry connection is always a good one to have.
2: Yeah, it is. And I'm um, I should have said this as we kicked off, and Nastasia uh, couldn't make it today, but um, I'm I'm thrilled that you guys work together and you you co-host I'll have to have her on another time.
1: Yeah. It wasn't that she wasn't invited, right? She, she happens to be in Los Angeles.
2: Last week, I announced that both of you were going to be on the show. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. she was certainly invited yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we will we will have her on another time. But um, yeah, congratulations on, on all of your success and everything you do. And I know, I, are you with I, ICC? Are you still, is that a role? I in? am not, not with okay. them. okay. Uh, not,
1: not. I'm not, not with them. Okay, I'm on their true. website and, you know, at any time I could teach a class there, but, uh, but right. I haven't done it in a while. It's just because I've just been, just been too busy. But right. yeah, I'm not, okay. I am not unaffiliated with them.
2: You're not, not. Okay. I'm not, not Fabulous. with them. Fabulous. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. My guest today has been Dave Arnold. He's the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. He's also the co owner of, of, Existing conditions and the owner of Booker and Dax, and he's the founder of Mofad. So that's a lot. Websites Booker XConditions.com, Mofad.org, and at Cooking Issues. You can follow him. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's Bayer Public com and SherryBayer.com, and All in the Industry.com, and that's where. We are live with Host Summit Plus Social where you could find out more about our event and get some tickets. So check it out. The event is January twenty seventh, 2020. All of our shows are archived here at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Jeet, and thanks again to Dave, and thanks to Anastasia for her help, too. Uh, I'll be back next week with Ruth Reichel, so I hope you'll tune in then. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, We've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at HeritageRadioNetwork.org.